Look, South African theatre is relentless in its truth, in its vulnerability, in its being visceral. And I think South Africa can never let go of that in its theatre making and its way of telling stories. Where you come from, it doesn't necessarily define you, but it does influence a lot of who you become, but not who you become, but who you are. I'm the Congress. Let's have the whole world be happy. World peace. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast. Sponsored by Harlequin Floors, world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. The Theatre Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Ana Aguilera. And my name is Anna Rob. Lucidi Job is sharing with us about directing and acting in Africa. Lucidi is an award-winning theatre director, actress and voice artist. She completed her BA Honours degree in Dramatic Arts at Wits University in South Africa and trained as a singer with jazz musician Sisa Muftik. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And where are you right now, Lucidi? I am currently in um, Johannesburg in South Africa in a place called Sandton. Nice. Fantastic. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the arts. Very interesting journey. So I, I've always been an actress slash singer. When I was a little girl, I wanted to be Whitney Houston. I wanted to be Mariah Carey. I wanted to be Brenda Farsi. And then, you know, throughout um, primary school and high school, I've always done, you know, acting and public speaking and singing. And I was always in the school play. And when I matriculated, and, and that's finishing my high school, to then start looking for universities. My mom was really against the idea of me studying music or drama. And I went and I studied journalism for two years and I failed very well for those two years because I was completely unhappy. And then in um, 2003, I know that America has idols and South Africa had its own idols competition. And because I'd always been a singer, I entered Idols because, you know, I, I wanted an affirmation or confirmation, you know, you sing, but are you that good? And I entered Idols and I made it to the top 32. And after that, my mom then saw an article in the newspaper that was advertising the Wits School of Arts. And I applied and was accepted for both music and drama. And that's how I ended up getting into the arts in sort of a long roundabout way. But I've always been someone who was going to go in that direction. And what does the um, the uh, the industry look like? Because you do you're a voice artist and you're an actor and you do directing as well. So what it what's that balance of work for you in in South Africa? And is it outside South Africa as well? Most of the work that I do is in South Africa. And so how things have worked out, and, and because of COVID at the moment, the most dominant um, source of income and work that I'm doing is that of being a voiceover artist. The South African voiceover industry has been there for years and not necessarily dominated by actors, because the reality is being a voiceover artist is a skill in and of itself. You don't necessarily need to be a performer to be a voiceover artist. But sometimes people who are performers are voiceover artists and are better at the job. So I, and I think I've got this from my varsity days. I wanted to be as involved in the arts as possible. So I remember I studied film, I studied writing, I did performing, I did music. I, I, I wanted to do all of the things that I'm passionate about, even at varsity level. So when I walked into the industry after graduating, I went, I want to sing, I want to act, I want to do voiceovers, you know. So I've, I've done, so what, what sustains me is my voiceover work. And then, of course, the acting is, you know, freelance here and there. There was a time when 
I didn't work as much. I don't know what happened. This was about end of 2014, 2015. My career just shifted. And in fact, a lot of the acting work that I was doing dwindled. And then I, that's when I sort of shifted and moved into becoming a director. So, yeah, the work is, it's work that I am doing that I've always wanted to do and have been adamant that I want to do it, you know. And the acting, the acting's sort of falling away a little bit, and that's okay. I feel like I, I, am, I am enough. I've played some amazing characters on stage, so I feel fulfilled. And then, of course, the directing is just like a consistent journey where I think I became a director when I was 33. That was 2017. And I worked up until 2019. And, of course, lockdown has impacted the theater industry. And I'm okay to direct every four years, every five years, you know? Yeah. I'm very curious of uh, how you see yourself as a director and what kind of director you think you are and what kind of directing you like to do. How do, how do I see myself as a director? I, you know, it's interesting. And I'm, you know, sitting doing a table read of a play that I'm about to direct. And I keep going, I feel like I've lied to everyone and I've fooled everyone. I'm not a director. Like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I can't, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I love directing and it, it, it comes, it comes almost naturally for me. You know, it's, it's, I remember the first time I, I directed, I, I knew what I was doing instinctively. I could see something and I knew where to shift it and move it and pull it and, That worked, that didn't work. You know, I believe I'm an actor's director. I, I can see a brilliant performance from an actor a mile away. I can see a bad performance from an actor a mile away as well. You know, and I think it comes from having been on stage. It comes from me being an actor that I just want to empower the person as much as possible to give them all of the tools that they need I, I, I do the heavy things, but I've got a great sense of humor. <laughs> it's funny. I, and I look, I am a, as an individual, I'm a deep thinker and I, I take life quite seriously, you know, and I am quite affected by the human journey, story, the human experience, you know, and it, it resonates with me quite a lot. I've had a very interesting life. Um, and so I love the work that that's weighted, that has gravitas, you know. Um, I, I directed a comedy, and it's easy and it's fun, but I don't know, there's something about sitting and watching a play that is that moves you, and that's the kind of work that I love. Even musical theater that I absolutely love, I still love, like, I don't know, the, 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 the musical that, that hits home. Yeah, so that's, that's the kind of work I do. That's really interesting. And I kind of want to dig a little bit deeper because I guess every country and every culture has a different way of approaching the arts in terms of what actually is the role of a director. Is there a lot of support for the arts in Johannesburg or, you know, in South Africa generally? And it, generally, if there's not, you, the director's role stands out to so doing more than maybe just directing, maybe selecting the cast and doing all the things that, what, what sort of, in your journey of creating a show, what's your scope of work as a director there? So scope of work as a director, very similar to the international world where you have a theatre, you have an artistic director. Within the theatre, you've got people who handle the marketing, the producing, It's theatre. I mean, look, this really does come from the fact that South Africa for many years um, operated quite similarly to that of the English, you know, and so much of what we have in South Africa is recognized globally as similar. You know, you don't walk into a theatre and go, wait, things work differently here. You'll walk into a theatre and it is a theatre like you would find 
in London, a theatre you'd find in New York, a theatre you'd find, I don't know, in Germany, you know. So the director's role is the same. And I also think that's that's why the, you know, my qualification is internationally recognised because that's the training you get. You, you get taught Western theatre, as they would call it. And of course, I think as, as, as South Africans, as Africans, as a black South African, one starts going, we hear the Western, but how do we find different ways within ourselves to start telling stories? You know, that's, that's a very big thing for me as a, as a director, because I am aware of the part of me as a black South African that has innate storytelling abilities that no one taught me. It is within my culture, it is in the tradition, it's the way that I was raised. So yeah, that's the, that's, that's something that one is searching for and looking for in their work. With regards to the support, and I know that my, my government would be very upset that I say this on an international platform, but it's important that we put it out there, that South African arts is not that well supported. There are certain theatres and institutions that are funded by the state government, that is. But as an artist in this country, you you stand on your own. And I think we felt that a lot during COVID. You know, I honestly, for me, like I keep saying, had I not been a voice artist, and that's not even the art industry, that's advertising, actually. That's corporate space. I would have been unemployed. I would have been struggling. If you are lucky enough to work in a theatre institution and get given the opportunity to direct or act, then it, it, it works in the normal structured way. But if you're standing up there on your own, it's completely different and it's really hard. You've done some work in, I think, I believe Nigeria, is that right? In Uganda. In Uganda and Kampala. Um, I spent some time in, in Kenya first and Nairobi. And then from there went to Kampala. How does that compare to uh, the African, South African institutions and how this, like, yes, like you were comparing the South African to the English, and now I'm curious to hear how that's different. I think what a lot of the time what happens in Africa, you know, we, we it's, a, it's, it's a product of, you know, neocolonialism where the ruling party will, or, or the, the liberation party will come into, into power. And a lot of the stuff that existed before gets stripped away or gets taken, you know, there's corruption, there's so many different things that happen and that affect systems that operated in a particular way before, you know, and it's very different. South Africa is... And many people from, you know, many of the people from the diaspora say that about South Africa, that South Africa operates as though it were in overseas or international country, whereas other places on the continent don't necessarily function and operate like that. So in 2018, I was directing When Swallows Cry for the Kampala International Theatre Festival. And, I mean, the, the space that they had was really different. It didn't have a, a, a stage like our theatre festivals have in South Africa. It, you know, it was a space. They didn't have a, an amazing lighting rig. The technical support wasn't great. I mean, when Swallows Cry has projection, they didn't have a projector that they could use, you know, and, and it was all budgetary constraints. So what's interesting about theatre in South Africa many, many years ago, um, during the apartheid regime, there was something called community theatre. And it was theatre that would take place anywhere. A company of actors would come together and they would perform in a school hall or in a church. And that would, those were the beginnings of what was called, I guess, the Black South African theatre. And... What, I'm, what I experienced was that sense of going, this is now what's happening on the, in, in, in Uganda, the festival, that it becomes the kind of theater or the challenge is, can the story be performed anywhere? 
you know, can you put it up anywhere without all of the technical things and the glamour, you know? So it was a very interesting experience for me because I had gone from, number one, I come from the training that is of Western theatre, with a theatre and a stage and a proscenium arch and the lighting. And then, of course, working as an actor and director within that style and going to a festival that takes me right back to the beginnings of theatre in South Africa during the apartheid regime. And I don't know if it's about, in parts, I think it is about the innate storytelling ability and, and, and what I said earlier about how Africans are finding the innate way of storytelling that doesn't necessarily rely on all these other aspects. But I also think it's got to do with money. If you give people the money, then they will create, they will have that ability to create that kind of theatre. And do you feel that the, you know, even though you might have to shift and change and create the show differently in those places, that it's still, you were still able to make it resonate with audiences and was it well received? It was very, very well received and I was able to, to make it resonate. I believe a story is a story. You can tell it. I always say even when I, when I direct, before actors want to get up and perform the truth of the story, unlike if you're just sitting on a table doing a read, the story is already there. You know, so you could listen to a story being told. And, and I think this was the beauty about When Swallows Cry, this play that was one space that took us across three different continents. You were from, you went to Australia, you went to America, then you were back in Africa. And all it was was going, how do the characters shift and change their positions? How do they change accent? You know, and we did simple things around costume that changed. And we said, now I'm showing you that this person is no longer this character, but that character. And that was a really amazing experience, was going to the Kampala International Festival, stripping down the work and having the story still stand and resonate to an, an audience. No, it's true. I mean, I think that's the credit to your direction because I always ask myself, Anna and I mostly work on the technical side of theatre, but I always ask myself, if you take the technical elements away, do you still have a show, right? Because I always think that technical elements should support the, the story, not drive the story. And, um, and, and never are you more tested when you get stripped away from those elements, right? And have to uh, have the bare bones or whatever you can to, to tell the story. So that's really fascinating. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I, that was an amazing experience. It was in fact, that show at every festival made me think on my feet. I would be like, I need to make it happen. What do I do? And you sort of walk into the space and go, what do I have available to me? You know, I remember we, we had, so at that festival, actually, I went, okay, the city, try and think of what your lighting designer did. And then I went, right, we're just going to change lighting states. And I went, when this lighting state is on with this, that lighting state, so give me that, give me that, give me that. You know, and it is, for me, I love technical. I think it's amazing when you see like all those different elements in a show, but I just think it's important that it does absolutely support the story. It can't be the story. I'm going to go back a little bit to when you were telling about how we tell our own stories, our cultural, like going back to our cultural roots and tell our stories. And I guess the question is a broad question on the responsibility we bear on telling our own stories, just in general thoughts, I guess. Oh, it's a very interesting thing, you know, and I think I'm going to get a lot of flack in South Africa because of the new play that I'm directing and it's an American story. And why aren't you telling South African stories? And You know, we have to tell our own stories and you know, what's interesting about what's happening in South Africa at the moment is that, first of all, South African theatre in very many ways was built on the apartheid regime. That's what people recognise. You know, they, they, there is a genre of theatre called protest theatre. That's where South Africa really made a name for itself as theatre makers, going out internationally and telling the story about what was happening in South Africa. 
And then for, for a while, South Africans opened up their doors. And I know even for myself as an actress that it's been important for me to learn versatility and, and learn how to play different characters with different accents, etc. And now we're sitting and we're going, what is the South African story? What story do we tell? And I think South Africa is struggling to tell its story outside of its political regime because South Africa has to take, I don't know how many years back, to start going to the root of who we are as a people and going, who are you as Kasa people, as Zulu people, as Sutu people, and what are our stories there? And that's one exercise. But then we're sitting with gender-based violence and we're sitting with a horrible ill in this country around toxic masculinity. And I mean, last year during the COVID-19 pandemic, we were going around saying, well, we've got two pandemics. There's gender-based violence and COVID because it's actually insane what is happening with, you know, and that is a story that needs to be told, but it becomes painful. It suddenly becomes so personal that you all need therapy thereafter. So what I think is beautiful about being a storyteller and story in general, stories are universal. Romeo and Juliet is a love story. So how do you how do you take something from somebody else's story and use that to tell your story? The ways in which, and this whole thing around how Africans tell stories came up when I was studying and looking at Osmane Sembene's filmmaking, who's a Senegalese filmmaker, and how he completely deconstructed the whole, you know, Hollywood film narrative and started going, how do we tell stories? It's non-linear. So I'll give you an example. I don't think this is as exciting based on this non-linear narrative that I go, this existed before the US found non-linear storytelling. Because if you tell a story, and this is where Africans come from as storytellers, stories were told around the fire. They were oral. It was about one person playing many different people. And then it was about going, I start here, but then I pick it up there. And then I go to the other place. And then suddenly in the middle of the story, everybody's singing the same song altogether. That's a deconstruction, you know? So we can do that. And that's finding different ways of telling story and re rediscovering storytelling. And it's something that I am passionate about. And I know that I will get there and I will find it eventually so you know we're so impatient i think at times as humanity that the idea sparks and we think we've got to do it tomorrow i'm 37 i can do this when i'm 45 to really go there's a story i want to tell do i at 45 look at this moment in our history where gender-based violence was an issue and start going how do i take this topic around black masculinity and the apartheid regime for example and the fact that i'm part Kasa, part Sutu, and then go, it's a love story, and then put it together on a stage, and it's 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 got a non-linear narrative, and suddenly there's a song that we sing on stage, and the audience is singing it, and we go, wow, we've deconstructed, we've, re, we, we've recreated storytelling, and I'm okay to find that when I'm 45. It's sitting with me. I'm going to get there. But it is important that we do tell our stories. Telling our stories also gives us a sense of identity. Absolutely. And I think that's really fascinating the way that you say um, even merely the construction of the stories and the narrative from a different cultural perspective because there is that tendency, I think, to see what, say, America that has been so influential just to copy and, and, and formulate but like you said, if you're drawing from your culture and you're building that from, I mean, think of all those possibilities. That's just very exciting to me to think about that. And secondly, on the back of that, I kind of wanted to ask, as a director, are you seeing a lot of new work coming out of South Africa? Is there people writing those stories? Is it is it strong? Is it they, they're coming? Yeah, they're coming. Yesterday I did a read, a play read, of a play called Borderline written by Paul Slab. 
And basically, it's a story about an interracial couple, a black woman and a white man. And, um, you know, the white man is going to confront his father. So it deals with toxic masculinity. It deals with issues of race. And it deals with this couple, you know. So the stories are coming. And I think this is what's been happening. This is what happened in South Africa, with South African theater, that for many years, South Africans were focused on the apartheid regime. We needed time. It's only 24 years. So much has happened. So, so much of our country is still young, you know. And so we needed to go, what story do we need to tell now? And we've needed to find our theater. Look, South African theater is relentless in its truth, in its vulnerability, in its being visceral. And I think South Africa can never let go of that in its theater making and its way of telling stories. And I think it is a reflection of our society, actually, because South Africa is a weird country. It's, 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 it's such a deeply, it's got all the potential but then it's got such pain inside of it. It's the human experience, I guess. I don't know. You know, so we, it, and it, it finds a way of, you know, the stories, the, the style, the genre of theater finds a way of telling the, I don't know, it's almost like at the right time, the right stories come out because we are ready to hear them. You know, we are ready to receive them. So there is a lot of writing that's happening. I think there's a lot of work that's been done, especially in the past two years during lockdown, which I also thought was good because we're so quick to want to get out and do. So the stories are coming. One of the, one of the plays I directed um, was about gender-based violence, domestic violence, brutal legacy, which I directed in 20, 2019. And I think this is also because South Africa's always been a conservative country where freedom of speech was not allowed. So people are still finding their voices and grappling with their voices. And, you know, Brutal Legacy, for example, was taken from a book. And I think there's a lot of book writing as well. And we must never think that a book can't be turned into a play, you know. So all, all of these people are finding their voice. And as those voices are coming up, more stories are being told that we can then take and put into either a theater production or a film, you know. Yeah, so the stories are coming. They really are. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. I have two questions, as I do, <laughs> um, and they're very unrelated. You were talking about Romeo and Juliet, and I have feelings about, well, I don't know, it's about Shakespeare. <laughs> that is so um, tough, no? <laughs> she has feelings about Shakespeare, so let's hear them, Anna. Tell us about your feelings about what are your Shakespeare. Feelings? <laughs> no, but I, I think the point is very relevant, and you chose a story that really has been taught, taught or told, taught, and deconstructed a number of times. And it made me think on what is the role the classics actually have in our st storytelling if we're going to tell our own stories. Like, as a Hispanic person, my first thought was like, okay, we have Romeo and Juliet, and then we have a birthday story, which is West Side Story, 
which is from like a Puerto Rican point of view, told by a white man. And then we have In the Heights, told by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's actually a Latino. He's from Puerto Rico and he retells the story. But also there was a very, I think it's, um, oh my God, I, 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 it's, it's this movie from this important director. It skips his name right now. But then he tells it from the Chicano way, like this confrontation of cultures at the border and that cultural confrontation. So I thought it was, although Shakespeare is by no means my favorite writer or playwright, (laughs) uh, and uh, Romeo and Juliet is not my favorite play, I thought it was a brilliant example that you brought it up to, or at least in my head, to, to this work of how classics interact with the way we tell our own stories but I don't know that that was my thought I don't know what you think is the role of classics in storytelling when it comes to us telling our own stories I think classics just show people that can be done that's all you know what I'm saying like you know it's funny because I grew up on something called inform inform me are their stories you grew up being told stories as a kid, you know, I didn't know Romeo and Juliet, didn't care about Romeo and Juliet, but I watched, you know, there was beautiful stuff on South African TV, these Casa TV shows, and that's the stories I grew up watching. So Romeo and Juliet, by the time I saw it, I wasn't moved. I wasn't this <laughs> as though that's like my truth. And so they have a place. I mean, look, and and then what do you learn about a classic? Or what do you learn about the stuff that Shakespeare wrote? Shakespeare was writing about the human experience. Star-crossed lovers, that happens all the time all over the world. Two people that love each other that are not allowed to be in love because you're not good enough, you know? And these two just decided to kill themselves, you know, and by mistake, what, what's Macbeth about? Shows the power of a woman behind a man's drive and his career. You know, in, in my culture, we say that the woman is the neck, the man is the head. You know, it's, it's you can't move the head without a neck. So it's like Lady Macbeth, you're not, you're not special. <laughs> you know, but, and, and what is it? It's about, you know, the, the fall of man, human error. So the roles, as I said, the role of classic is, classics is to go it can be done you know you can put up the story and I think what is it is one about Shakespeare it's the fact that it is the culture right what you know Shakespeare was performed by men before it was performed by women you know and and I guess what are we seeing is that stories are a reflection of society and or not a reflection of society but Shakespeare was important because of the time when Shakespeare came about. The story continued. And then suddenly we realize, you know, if you're in South Africa, you go, no, but a story like this exists. It just might not have been put down on paper, but it exists. So maybe let me tell that story. And and maybe we one gets offended based on the fact that, or not offended, but, you know, you spoke about being Hispanic. Listen, this is the reality. Colonization has been an issue. You know, a, a one culture has been the dominant culture for many years. So suddenly we're going, no, but actually, which is not a bad thing, but it 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 we one doesn't need to get offended because, like I said, Shakespeare was being told, you know, what was theater then? Theater was a space that was built that People could go, and if you were bad, they'd throw tomatoes and cabbages, and because that's the history of the Western theater. But now we're starting to go, okay, so what's our story? How did we tell stories? And this is Shakespeare. Okay, cool. Well done, Shakespeare. Right. Where's our story of love? How does it play itself out? <laughs> I love that. Well done, Shakespeare. <laughs> well done, Shakespeare. <laughs> But it's so good. It's so good. But I also think like, you know, like you said, you mentioned before, not being in a rush to tell the story that you want to tell. And and I think that's such a wise thing to do. I mean, in, in the steps that you may take to telling that story, you're kind of acknowledging that maybe you're not, you haven't got all the pieces together yet. 
and 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 that 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 time will reveal those things to you and if that is to do a Shakespeare play in the meantime to explore some foundation then maybe that's the that's the way that you have a South African take on a classic story right I think that's that's the money shot that's exactly what it is it's about going do I use Shakespeare in the meantime cool yeah yeah do you get a lot of opportunity to choose what you are directing as in terms of the text or the show or are you sort of hired to a show that has been chosen already? So the first six shows that I directed, no, first four shows, five shows, I was hired. The first five shows I was hired. Then the sixth show I I chose and then the seventh one I was I was hired as well and now this eighth production that I'm about to direct, I chose it. I mean, that, that must be a great position to want to be in, to, you know, I mean, of course, getting handed a text and being asked to direct it is also a wonderful opportunity, but also to say, okay, what's, what's your, what's the story that you want to tell that? I mean, I can imagine as a director, that's kind of an exciting opportunity to go, okay, which one am I going to choose? What story do I get to tell? Yeah, I th- it, it, it really is exciting. And I always say the work calls me. It's funny, even the productions that were given to me, everything inside of those productions, I could see a piece of myself in it. For some reason, there was something that I was like, this is personal. (laughs) How did I get given this play? It's personal, you know? And so the work that I choose as well, there's something beautiful about surrendering to the universe and knowing that what is yours is yours and the things you're meant to do, you're going to do. Because the, the stories I choose, as much as I do choose them, I was meant to choose them. I was meant to tell that story, you know. And it's it's harder because then I have to find the money. <laughs> but it is special. They it, it really becomes my 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 baby, you know. It becomes my my little seed that I planted. Where do you see the South African stories in? the global stage. How do you see them fitting in or? Yeah. She asks the big questions, Anna, you see. <laughs> yeah, she does. Hey? Mm-hmm. You know, where do I see them fitting in? Unfortunately, there's only certain people who have got access to the global stage in South Africa, you know? And so... I don't think that the best stories necessarily are being seen, you know, and and I mean, this is theatre, being specific around theatre, you know, film is a little bit more broad, you've got a film industry and yeah, but, and I think you know, as, as everybody, so everyone knows in South Africa that there's been a South African musical that made it to Broadway and it completely deconstructed the Broadway musical theatre um, structure. And I think it's still possible for something like that to happen. The challenge around it is the fact that it might not be the right production, you know, and I think it is important that it is the right production. It is important that it is the best of South African theatre. It is the best South African theatre production, you know. Um, and the reason why South African theatre is not going to end up being global or going overseas is because there's this copy and paste, you know, versus going, what are we doing? What? How are we doing? What are we doing? I mean, there are those that 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 manage, I guess, in a small, somewhat roundabout way of going overseas and doing a a show that no one really knows about, but people are suddenly like, "Wow, you guys are amazing! Like this is this is phenomenal," you know. Um, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I, I get what you say, but like I think like that the, there's a lot at stake when you when you take a show from South Africa and put it on the world stage because that. When if that's the only thing that people see of the in two three years uh, as an example of South African work, 
then it needs to be a good example of South African work, right? Like you want it, it's the same as from any country, you want it to be proud of what what is being put out there and, and that's a, and there's a sense of responsibility and even who gets to tell the story and what opportunities at the right time is all, I mean, that's theatre and arts in general, like it doesn't matter, it's, that's not country specific, right? Everybody has an opinion on who should be telling the story um, and who gets those opportunities. So it's it's just an interesting thing, you know, because a lot of, I think when people don't know enough about a country or enough about the art scene in a particular country, which is why we're digging in it, in it, in it with you a little bit, is because they'll make assumptions, right, based on the one show that they've seen or the one representation, and it's very easy to whitewash or, or uh, um, generalise once you've seen that one thing. Yes, yes. But I have to say one thing because many years ago I did a show in Johannesburg and one thing I do know is that South African audiences are very different to every other South audiences. And I've worked in a lot of places around the globe and I there was this one moment in the show where the people started dancing on the stage and then everybody in the audience got up and danced as well. And as this young Australian girl who rarely left Australia when I first went to Johannesburg, I was just astounded. I was like the energy and the joy and I was so enamoured by the audience just being so participatory in the show. Like it was something I'd never seen and actually I have never seen it again. Like I have never seen anywhere else enjoy themselves like they did that day that I did that show. South African audiences will talk back to you while you're on stage. <laughs> I have... <laughs> I have been in a show mid-scene and somebody calls back out at you and you're like, I don't know how to maintain composure, but you do, you know. They will talk back at you. They will dance. They will, you know, it's a very interactive audience. That's that's who South Africans are. Yeah, I just think that it's amazing. It's it's a great energy. I love it. (laughs) It really is amazing. Um, well, that well, both comments you you just said, like how the audiences react, very in a very specific way or very distinguishably, and the responsibility we bear when we take um, stories abroad. Do you think there's different stories? We for sure there are different stories we tell when it comes to the local community and the international community, do you think there should be a distinction between them? How do you mean should there be a distinction? Should we curate the stories in terms... Uh, like, yes, we curate what's good, right? Quote-unquote good, what we think should go abroad. But is the story we're telling a different story? Should it be a different story, the one we tell? Is the dialogue that we need to establish a different dialogue between our smaller communities and our more broad communities? I, I think so. I mean, if I'm understanding the conversation correctly, because the experience, the life experience is different. You know, it's, it's, it's a completely different lived experience. So it should be, you know, I, look, I have, and it's, it's been the, it's been amazing you know, when you travel, it's truly, truly amazing because you meet all these different people who come from different backgrounds and you can have the same conversation and, you it, you know, people resonate with you. But you just become so aware of the fact that someone's story is authentic based on where they are placed in their life and what is happening around them. Because, because of the nuances, you know, around storytelling and, and, you know, you and I could fall in love. You meet your man, I meet my man, and we fall in love with this man. I'm such an opus romantic. I lose love a lot. <laughs> um, you know, but how we fall in love will be different. You might use public transport, and that's taking a bus. I live in Johannesburg. I don't use public transport. I have my car. And public transport is, is different, right? And, and we've got a thing called a taxi that I don't think anybody's got anywhere else in the world. <laughs> you know, and um, 
for example, and, and that's a mode of public transport. Um, I've forgotten what the name of it is. It's like a, it's a, ah, oh, uh, oh, I've forgotten the name. They've got them in Kenya and they've got them in Uganda. You literally sit on the back of a motorbike and that's a public transport system. It's already there. I've just spoken about three different places and it's a it's different modes of transportation and it's maybe meeting somebody, you know, did I meet the person at the traffic lights as I stopped my car and I looked and there was a car next to me and there was the guy I fell in love with, the one sat on the bus, the one, and, and then who are these people? How were they raised? How did they grow up? Um, you know, what, what do they eat? So we can go on a first date. What are you eating? What am I eating? You know, did he take me out for you know, which is sampan beans, you know, did or, or did he take me out for sushi, which does exist in South Africa, you know, or or did that one go and have, I've, I've completely forgotten most of the food that I've had in Kenya and <laughs> Uganda, you know, but those things, and then it's it's completely different conversation. It's a different dialogue. It's a different where you come from. It doesn't necessarily define you, but it does influence a lot of who you become, and not who you become, but who you are. No, it's so true. It's so true. So tell us one thing that, what's your favourite thing about your job? My favourite thing about my job? Oh, my gosh. I've never been asked that question. Oh, good. (laughs) My favourite thing about my job they're two parts, right? One, it's seeing someone's dream come true. You know, beginning of this year, I worked with the Global Youth Choir. And these are young kids. They're not kids, actually. They're not that young. They're like in their early 20s. And they, they live out in Limpopo at Mutse. And, you know, it's weird. This, South Africa is a crazy country. Anyway, yes, I, I, I got certain advantages something called privilege. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit more privileged than the other. But as a black female theatre director in this country, I'm still a minority. I'm maybe one of the only South African female theatre directors, black, that has done the work that I've done based on the opportunities that I've given, I've been given. And then I've fought to maintain that momentum so I am no more privileged than the other based on whatever education that I got, you know, and being in the arts is foreign. You know, my mother, my family <laughs> didn't know what a voice of artist was. They didn't know what a theater director was. I mean, they, they, they've seen plays, but, you know, my, my nephew is the first generation where he will be able to say something like, being an artist is a is a possibility. You know, yes, there's some family members that played piano and were musicians in my family, but all of this is new, you know. So one of my favorite parts is seeing somebody being on a stage who I know that it was hard for me getting there, but it was probably 10 times harder for them. My favorite part is watching an actor take a show out of my hands. There are times when I've watched a play that I've directed and I've just seen an actor do something that I go, I didn't direct this. They are now going off on their own thing and it is beautiful. And I don't think I've got any place or space to start coming in and giving, yes, you can give notes to assist, to move them forward in their in, on their journey, but yeah, that's that's one of my favorite parts. My favorite part is seeing the show come together after I have cried. I cry not as a director. <laughs> Actress, not so much. Director, it's another story. Seeing the show come together, watch it and see it be the thing that I've been somewhere in the back of my head trying to create. Yeah, that's the favorite part about my job. What if you could change something about your job or how the industry work? I would give all people who are of the highest caliber and excellence, I would make sure 
that they all have an opportunity to act in a play, to light a show, to design a show, to put up a show, to direct a show. You know, I would, oh my gosh, I like, I'm that person. If I could find other black women and give them the same that Lissetti had, you know, and obviously that's life, right? I can't give them the same, but can I put them on a stage and go, listen, Lissetti once directed a show here, go and direct a show, then I would do it. That's one thing that I would change. And I would make sure that it's got nothing to do with anything else other than excellence and somebody being amazing. That's an amazing mission. Absolutely. So if there's those people out there, how do they find you, Lucidi? Look, I mean, I, I, I would only be able to do that if I was the artistic director of a theatre institution. And I don't think that's a line that I'm going to go down. My heart is huge and sensitive. I'm that girl who goes, let's have the whole world be happy. <laughs> world peace. It's not a possibility. <laughs> I know, so, but you got to you got you, you got to start with somewhere, right? You got to start with that mentality, I believe. Absolutely. And then even if you put it out in a certain percentage and and into the world, it it, it has repercussions. I, I truly no, true. And I think, look, I'm not. I don't have that part of my personality that's a gatekeeper. But wait, the good thing is I don't compromise on excellence. But I, I if. As I move forward on my journey, you know, as a theatre director, who knows what happens? Who knows what spaces I am put in where someone says, can you suggest X, Y, and Z? And just suggesting a name, you know, is amazing. It's enough. After that, they go in and they do the work. Great. That's amazing. Go ahead. How do people find you if, if they want to reach out and find, maybe they have this brilliant idea on how to make spaces more available? I don't know. I'm on Instagram, lithbaby underscore job. I'm on Instagram. Yeah, they can they can send me a direct message and we can have a conversation and take it from What there. if they want to hire you as a voiceover artist? If they want to hire me as or a as voiceover director. As a voiceover artist and as a director, then they can find me at osmtalent.co.za. It's perfect. I just I just followed you on Instagram. So <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Lucidi, so much so good to uh, learn a bit from you and hear about your story and everything. Thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been wonderful. Thank you. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the for your time and the great conversation. I had fun. This was a really <laughs> cool interview. It was amazing. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Was. Thank you so much. Theater at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only thirty-eight US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.